0: Hello and welcome to The Field Guides. Bill Mikeleck here, and you're listening to part two of our field trip to the Roger Torrey Peterson Institute in Jamestown, New York. If you haven't let it listen to part one, I suggest you check that one out first. In it, we spoke with Arthur Pearson, CEO of the Institute, who filled us in on Peterson's background, the work of the Institute, and we also discussed some history of field guides and their influence on conservation. In this episode, we head out on the trail with Twan Leanders, the Institute's Senior Director of Science and Conservation. Tuan grew up in the Netherlands, and he went on to have a career in conservation that deserves to be made into a movie. From the treetops of Central American rainforests to writing field guides on the wildlife of Costa Rica, to capturing spiny softshell turtles in post-industrial rivers, Tuan's stories, as well as his personal philosophy on science communication, it makes for a fascinating listen. So stick around as Steve and I sit out on a rainy summer morning with Tuan. Enjoy. All right, folks. So. As you can hear, we are back outside, and we're here with Twan Leenders. Hello, Twan. Hi, how are you? And Twan, just to give people an idea, what's your job title?
1: I'm the uh, Senior Director of Science and Conservation at the Roger Thurry peterson Institute. All I'm right. still on the fence about the senior part, <laughs> I don't feel that old. <laughs>
0: now, before we start this
1: next section of the podcast,
0: folks, I wanted to, to read a little passage for you. In my research, I did come across some scientific articles, but I also came across just some written passages, contemplations about field guides. And there was an author I came across called Diana Capel smith who I'd never heard of. Either of you guys ever heard no, of her? No, So she, she published a few books of nature essays, I believe from the 90s to the early 2000s. And there was one piece that she wrote for a journal called The American Scholar. Now, unfortunately, the, the article is behind a paywall, so most people aren't able to access it. I probably illegally printed out a few copies for the, the, the staff here just because I wanted to share it because it was so beautiful. Capel um, Smith wrote about her relationship with her Peterson wildflower field guide. She Great. talked about, she started out the article talking about how when she was 11 years old, her family was vacationing in Maine and they were taken on a nature hike at a local nature center. And she said, that she imagines in her memory that the, the leader was a young man, and she was probably a little bit smitten with him, and she pointed out a wildflower, and he looked at it for a second and said, Uh oh, that's just an aster.
2: Oh, just <laughs> an aster, yeah. <laughs> and I'm, it, I'm still pretty impressed if that's actually what he said. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and this is what she wrote, just take in how she describes the aster. And I remember the aster. Its rays were a brilliant purple. Its core, a dense coin of yellow velvet. It focused light as a crystal will. It faced the sun, rigid with delight. It was the sun's echo. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) But this is the part. So then she goes on, she says, later that day, a book with a green cover lay on the arm of an Adirondack chair under an apple tree. It was the same volume that our guide had carried as he marched us through the woods. Everyone who had been on the walk had gone into the nature center for milk and cookies and the book had been left there by itself. It was a thing of power, as totemic in its way as an orb and scepter. In the thin summer shadow of the tree, quivering like a veil, green on green on green, the book was revealed and I reached for i reached for it. A field guide to wildflowers, Peterson and McKenney, its Covered said. Its backside was ruled like a measuring tape. Its inside was full of drawings of flowers. And by the end of that week, I had my own copy. I have it still. Oh, that's great. So great. folks, if you can get your hands on it, it is a, a beautiful piece. And she just goes on and she perfectly captures that those first frustrating times trying to figure out what a wildflower is she's hiking with friends and she comes across a yellow flower so she flips to the yellow section Mm -hmm. she's like no those leaves aren't quite right and oh (laughs) nope that flower just the petals don't look quite right and Mm -hmm. just how eventually that field guide is your window to becoming I love, I know you love it when I say this, becoming friends with oh. <laughs> <laughs> the the wildlife around you, right? Yeah.
2: I, and I really like how she compares the aster to the sun. Right. Because not only are they called sunflowers, you know, th- that's obvious, but the word aster actually derives from a word for the sun, right? So, and having read some of her other stuff, I'm pretty sure she did that on
3: purpose. Right, and, <laughs> and, I, and I was thinking
2: she could have done it on purpose, but it also could have been such an easy coincidence to make just because sure. of the way we talk about it. But yeah. But it really does get its name from the yeah. sun, yeah.
0: Now, Twan, before we turned on the mic, I told you that mm-hmm. I was going to do my little intro here and then I was going to have you give us background, but could you start your background by telling us, do you remember what your first field
1: guide is? was? I do. I do, actually. So, I, I was born and raised in the Netherlands, far, far away from here, hmm. and I grew up in the country on what used to be my grandfather's farm, farm burned down. It was one of these old European, you know, 16th century farms. Did you wear down. wooden shoes? I did not, <laughs> and I did not eat tulips either, <laughs> even if people always ask me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was too obvious. I had to. Uh-huh. Well, I grew up in the country, and it's really farmland. And if anybody's familiar with the Netherlands, it's about you know, half the size of New York state and packed with people and very little nature. Every square inch has been shoveled over and fought over and battled over. You can say that about centuries. most of Europe, right? It's about, yeah, that's about the same. Yes. I mean, a lot of America deforested. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? I know yeah. people don't really realize that, but how much human interference has already taken place by the time we get there and see it. So it's, you know, it looks like nature to us, especially as a kid, right. but it's really not. It is isn't. it isn't. And I think that's what's always intrigued me. And I think I, I started getting interested in all the birds that I would see in my backyard, but I didn't really know what they were. And uh, at some point, I forget what birthday it was, I, I received a book, a field guide. That really opened my eyes to, to the world. It's only like I started recognizing familiar characters, but I'm also realizing that there's so many more that I hadn't seen and I wanted to see them. And European birds are mostly just brown and dull. So <laughs> so it, it took a we we call those it. sparrows here, and, uh, and and that
2: is a pet peeve of um, many birders saying, like, oh, it's just a sparrow. Because they're like, what are you talking about? I have field guides dedicated to just sparrows. You know, and I was like, I need you know, one of those because I are, like, struggle. Yeah. Even
1: the warblers are brown. It's, oh. it's not fair. It's not fair. <laughs> but, yeah. but there's some really cool ones. And I really started to just see all the different players in the landscape, and it's just, just fascinating to me. And it, it never really meant anything to me at the time, but it wasn't until fairly recently, certainly now, that that book that I started out with was Roger Torrey Peterson's Field Guide to the Birds of Great Britain and Europe. Oh, wow. So my spark book, my first field guide that really was sort of my, the start of my sort Mm -hmm. of more organized interest in the natural world, (laughs) started with a Peterson field guide. Uh And I came to the US in 2001, so it's fairly recent still, and I came here through Latin America, Central America, I lived in Central America for about 13 years. The whole concept of a Peterson Field Guide series wasn't really a thing for me because I was never really raised with that. And I, you know, full disclosure, I'm a herpetologist. So I really like frogs and snakes and turtles. So mm-hmm. I, I, my real first conscious experience with a Peterson Field Guide was the Peterson Field Guide to the Reptiles of Eastern U.S. and then Western. They're the best of their kind. They were just the most amazing books. They were totally just like prepackaged just compendium of everything <laughs> cool in the United <laughs> States, right? Mm-hmm. So
0: so bird guide you had that at home in the netherlands yeah, but yeah, then so you European didn't
1: realize that there was there were well more. there wouldn't have
0: been one in in europe there's, there's Th- that's no the peterson only one, guide it's the only
1: peterson guide that's relevant to europe yeah wow. oh yeah, okay yeah which is interesting too because when you you know, knowing now fast forward most people and i love that you brought up the the wildflower guide because it's one of my favorite peterson guides and it's one of the few of course that roger had a major major hand in he didn't obviously do them all he was the editor-in-chief of the series early on and really made sure to his original books became sort of a, a series of books that, that gave you access to all these different natural elements in the country. But his reach is so much bigger than what people think. He's not just birds, right? Right. He's not just... I think that's what US people think of Exactly, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. I think his his wildflower guide is really one of his most amazing accomplishments. Oh, yeah. That was and my first wildflower right? guide. Right, yeah. right. And just when you learn a backstory about how much time it took to put that together and the amount of effort it takes. And I know, I know from experience how hard it is to start writing a field guide for a group of organisms in a place where there's absolutely nothing to begin with where you have to just do everything the hard way like finding these creatures first and then somehow like mm-hmm. illustrating them and putting it all together and wrapping all that information into a book is insane it's daunting insane. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah to I still say wonder the least. why I still do it but
2: but I'm really glad you brought that up because y- you had said that you had written four field guides what are those in?
1: So my first field guide came out in 2001, and it was, the, it was a guide to the and reptiles of Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. I was down there doing graduate research, and I was really frustrated that I couldn't find the resources at all to figure out what I was looking at. And I was focused on coral snakes and coral snake mimicry, very, very specific, very focused. But of course, I, I was living in a rainforest environment, and you're just constantly tripping over these amazing animals <laughs> and absolutely no way of knowing what they were. And I literally came down straight from Europe first time on a plane going to Costa Rica I lived in the jungle for 9 months straight wow and i had photocopy research papers from like the 1800s in there because those were the resources oh. i had <laughs> that was that was all there was and this is pre trying to keep them dry in the rainforest (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly yeah which i still have them i have them in ziploc bags and every time i open them they smell like wet potatoes (laughs) 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 we always joke about the rainforest brie shampoos that's all a lie rainforest really smelling wet potatoes (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know that yeah (laughs) Yeah. but it's uh, you know there were no pictures i scraped all my money together as a poor student to do a few color copies of color photographs of a few species that i could find so to have those with me as reference Everything else I had were these like you know eighteen seventies lithographs. So if you find a frog, down there, yeah,
0: you don't know what it is. You look through all your photocopied papers. What do you do at that point?
1: So the only thing I had, which had come out in the mid nineteen eighties, which was the only resource really for the whole country's herpetofauna, was a uh, a dichotomous key, a museum key, for -hmm. specimens. So. Which is great. So I, I had a sense of what could be there, should be there, and how I could potentially sort of derive from like finding a frog to what it could be. But some of these identification steps required counting teeth on salamanders <laughs> that are like an Whoa. inch and a half long, right? So mm-hmm. the kind of things that you do <laughs> with a microscope in a li- laboratory, yeah. not in a jungle where you have this wriggling creature in your hands and you're trying to figure this out. Right. And there were steps in there that would look at. The color of certain glass frogs in preservative because they turn purplish <laughs> right. instead of green really? so they're really green yeah. so you find this green frog and i'm looking at the key trying to figure out what shade of purple it needs to be <laughs> to figure, right So right, if right. you were dead in formaldehyde <laughs> right. <laughs> right. right right yeah so, I, you know
2: i learned the same way with fish like we had to use yeah. preserved specimens and it was tough because so many of these fish are so colorful and right. then you're just looking at these <laughs> specimens in jars that have been there for how many years yeah and you're like yeah i have no idea Not the color. Right. No. And, and obvious
1: Field marks that you would use in a, in mm-hmm. for a field guide are not there exactly like the colors and We're dealing with tropical amphibians for example colors are fantastic but they're useless because some of these species are so variable that just mm-hmm. describing one color pattern is almost useless give you anything to go with yeah. we should
0: say for for listeners that don't know i, I imagine our, our, a lot of our listeners do know but a dichotomous key so we've been using the term field guide mm-hmm. and most people would think when you open it up there's pictures either drawings or photographs mm-hmm. along with descriptions range maps but dichotomous keys are more academic usually no or limited pictures right right and those are based on characteristics that you can look at and you make choices if the plant has five leaves go to this page and look Mm -hmm. at this group so you continually make choices and it's a process of elimination
1: yeah until you get uh, done, hopefully right (laughs) and then you have no way of double checking whether you actually took a wrong turn somewhere along the way or not you just have a name and you just have to go with that Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I I still have all my notebooks from my original trips, and I I literally wrote down every single step in the key so that going back, I could always figure out where I could have gone wrong so that if I ended up later realizing that I was wrong, I could sort of retrace my steps and take a different turn somewhere. Mm -hmm. So
0: do you talk to young researchers now in the field and just shake your head and say you have no idea
1: how hard <laughs> 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 this is where that senior director thing comes in i feel like an old man i'm like when i was doing this stuff <laughs> back in my I, day I, uh, I used to run through the woods with a car battery strapped in my back and spotlight, right <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> yeah. now they just whip out their phone i know right yeah. everything is in your pocket and it's fantastic i love that technology i love right. just you know the new plant apps you just pointed at a plant and you hit go and But in the jungles of Costa Rica, would you be able to (laughs) still? No. No. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Very (laughs) unlikely. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny because I do, I take students down to the tropics quite a bit still. And the places I tend to work tend to be completely off the grid. And you just see students just go through withdrawal as soon as we (laughs) lose cell phone coverage. Yeah. They're just done. They're They're dysfunctional. At a loss. They're just, they're a mess. Yeah. You see them stumbling out of bed in the morning and the first thing they do is they walk over to the corner where their backpack is and they dig for their phone and turn it back on and then mm-hmm. you see their faces just drop where yeah. there's still no bars. <laughs> you know what you should do? If, if
2: they know they're going to go on a trip like that, six months beforehand you should have them switch their service to Sprint. And the- <laughs> <laughs> they'll know. <laughs> and then yes. They'll know what it's like to, to it's go like somewhere and not have any wrap. signal. <laughs> Are we going to get screwed? We, spr- we have to bleep that out. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Good to know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so so you're down in Costa Rica, you're you're pu- you're trying to publish your first field guide, right?
1: Yeah, so so I started collecting imagery and I started sort of gathering information and the more and more I was doing this I realized there was a real need for this. There were so many researchers in places like Costa Rica who were undoubtedly facing the same challenges that I had. And I I kind of alluded to this earlier, I, I was never a model student in school, ever. I never did well in traditional learning environments. My brain is just not wired that way. And I honestly started writing a field guide for my own sake just to keep all this <laughs> stuff together. <laughs> so, And I still do this. I write all these books. And I literally, when people ask me questions, more often than not, I just grab my book to look it up because I can't, mm-hmm. there's so much stuff going on all the time, I can't keep it all in my head anymore. Sure.
0: So after you, you published that field guide, how did you end up publishing three more?
1: Well then, I ended up doing a big chunk of a uh, the wildlife guide of Costa Rica because I've I was training naturalist guys. I was actually managing a rainforest preserve, the area that I used to work in. And again, you just gather all this knowledge, and it's just not available in books anywhere. So you, I just want to do something with it. And I, you know, I have a research background. I have scientific training, but I never really had time or taken the time to really write a lot of research papers. I've not really been working in the really sort of ivory tower type academic situations where the publisher parish was not so much <laughs> a challenge for me. Right, I just always felt like I had a better ability to communicate to a different audience what I was seeing, what I was experiencing and I still felt like that was equally important if not more important because I'm working with all these other researchers who just like me originally were so focused on the one thing they're studying and they're right. surrounded by this just amazing diversity and I don't see it just like the same we're seeing around here. People walk the streets yeah. and they don't see the kind of things that I see. And I want, I just want to grab people by the scruff of the neck and say, like, fuck. Oh, yeah. You don't see those plants? Yeah. you see that? Look, there's so like, you
2: go flying right. over,
1: you know, people don't see it.
2: But it's, the blindness is amazing, it you know, because you're constantly yeah. surrounded by it. Yeah. I, I remember when I was first getting into it, all my early hiking days were with my friend, Matt, who runs another podcast that a lot of people may know. But you know, he's been kind of doing this outdoorsy stuff and he's been really into nature his whole life or at least a, a really big chunk of his life. And we'd be walking down a path and he'd be like, oh my God, look at this caterpillar!" Even if he didn't know what it was, yeah. he, he would find all these little things like whether it was an insect or a, a tiny plant that everyone else missed, but it was in yeah. flower, you know, it was blooming. And I kind of grew up with that where at almost a, a certain point, I was like, how is he seeing all this stuff, but I can't see it? But it's because <laughs> just from the experience and being exposed to it, mm-hmm. his brain was wired a little bit differently than mine at the time. Mm-hmm. Like, eventually I got to the point where now I go hiking with people and I'm pointing out all these things and they're like, Steve, why are you seeing all this stuff? <laughs> You're you know, like, how are you finding it? Yeah, and, and I've kind of become... It. You don't see it until you start looking. Yeah. Like until you, you know your, what to look, you know. Like you with your field guide, guide. Yeah. 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 It's, it's seeing and
1: it's hearing and it's just experiencing in other ways. So, you know, I, I walk through the woods and I can hear things kind of scurrying away and I can tell whether it's a snake or a lizard, <laughs> just from how it moves. Okay.
0: <laughs> So, can you give the, the listeners an idea of how you ended up from being in Costa Rica, down in Central America? How did you end up going from there to here and mm-hmm. then what do you do here?
1: So, originally I was doing a lot of work um, for your, European universities I was working at the University of Frankfurt in Germany, running expeditions, really doing biodiversity research in Central America, all over Central America. A lot of work was taking place in areas that were coming out of conflicts. That, you know where the focus had shifted from conservation to survival in most cases, yeah. you know, economic recovery, and you get to these situations where you know farmers suddenly like have the ability to go back into their original lands again and used to be forests and now it's not or farming had stopped for a long time and someone didn't need to rebuild their businesses and their you know, their livelihoods and, and they went back to business as usual and in a lot of cases for several years because of political histories in those areas a lot of forest just disappeared for, for a variety of reasons and nobody even knew about it because nobody was focused on it because there was obviously right. other other emphasis there So going back and resurveying some of these areas. I remember going to Nicaragua first with a small expedition trying to find out how the the Atlantic rainforest looked because it was at that point still thought to be the largest intact stretch of um, lowland rainforest in Central America. And spending weeks just trying to find any, like not even finding forest, let alone like anything pristine, like for the first time really having boots on the ground and kind of kind of regrouping after that and trying to figure out like where should priorities be, often working with governments. You, know, you go to a government office and you, you meet with the Minister of Environment and ah. they're sitting behind a desk and there's a big map on the wall with all these beautiful polygons on there, these outlines of where the national parks are. And then you go into these areas and most of them just have some cows in it and no trees and you know, these people have no resources to actually go check those preserves to actually see they're, if they're still they're paper there. paper parks. Yeah, the paper <laughs> parks, exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> like paper
2: towns. I've never heard of paper <laughs> parks. What? Yeah. Well paper but towns are different. <laughs> no, <laughs> but yeah. Paper parks are a thing though. Really? Yeah, they <laughs> are. Wow, wow. Yeah. yeah. They're it's they're it's parks
1: on, on paper only. Right, yeah. Straight. And it's there. It's often people protect these, you know, sometimes with the best intentions without really having the resources to even know what's going on. Or yeah. having the expertise to know how to deal with that or even to deal with, even if the parks are still there to know how to properly manage them and to know where yeah. some sort of the last strongholds for some of their really critical biodiversity would be. So I did that for quite a long time and lived in Central America kind of bopping around from there. Originally mostly for European based entities and eventually gradually more with US based entities. That picture was like a
0: Indiana Jones like
1: fedora. (laughs) <laughs> it's mostly like really dirty and smelling like wet potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> I love that it's wet potatoes and <laughs> not yeah, just it potatoes. it is. <laughs> it's a different. It's, you gotta try it sometime. <laughs> Alright, so. Yeah, but eventually I realized that I was really kind of cut off from the rest of the world, living in the middle of nowhere, literally. And loving it, loving every aspect of it, but it's hard to have a life out there too, so. Yeah
0: so gradually can't watch friends out there
1: no (laughs) no no, sorry you can't re-watch friends (laughs) 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 so i eventually came here and landed in connecticut with some friends and ended up teaching in a high school actually in a school that i had made a connection with before because I used to teach their students in the rainforest I would get a tractor load of students dumped on my doorstep every year and Mm -hmm. I would work with them
0: they must have loved you and stories I hope so (laughs) yeah I never
1: lost one so (laughs) no
0: but I mean just teaching in Connecticut you're incredible background i imagine most other teachers probably didn't like you very much because <laughs> <laughs> they were like well i came All from right, grad that's school that's <laughs> right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you come swinging fine. in on a vine <laughs> from the jungle <laughs> <Right>.
1: <laughs> yeah and actually before that too i did a lot of uh, one d- part of my research also focused on uh, tree canopy species so i actually started wow. working with a, a researcher actually from new york state uh, donald perry he's mm-hmm. from the rochester area originally mm-hmm. He was like the Jacques Cousteau, the Rainforest Canopy. And that's actually kind of what got me in the area. Like I I always ever since I was a kid I as long as I can remember, even before I could probably read, I would go to the library and pick out, you know, the Disney, the time live rainforest books with the (laughs) amazing pictures and I would just I would live vicariously through these books and that's still how I think. I still enjoy the field guides so much. I just travel through these books. I'm making mental wish lists of things I wanna (laughs) see if I ever get there, you know, that kind of stuff. That was really the impetus, like realizing that there's this guy out there who had unlocked the rainforest canopy and having done all my research and knowing there was really hardly any information but nothing about things that lived 100 feet over our heads that were sometimes completely confined there, you know, species that would never really come down. The only thing we knew about them was from these old historic descriptions of researchers in the early 1900s following these logging crews just waiting for the academy to come to them and then pick out these oh mangled bodies and wow. just driving those right it's so like the shotgun ornithology yeah. Of, yeah. <laughs> of dendrology yeah. this yeah. is what was here <laughs> <laughs> and we kind of looked like this but you can't really tell right. anymore because yeah. it just wow. came crashing down with a giant tree behind it so so i did a lot of um, tree climbing work, and for, for many, many years, I was a technical assistant for the BBC. I would help, like, wow. camera crews, like, rake all kinds of documentaries. All right, that's, that's,
2: that, by the way, yeah. that's so, I had no idea that you did that. One of my favorite books of all time, and I highly recommend all of our listeners read it, it's called The Wild Trees. Have you read that, Any either of you guys? No, I Oh, have. it's such an incredible, great book. It, it just Is follows, that, it follows researchers it that study the, like, essentially the ecosystems up in, in the, um, the redwoods out west. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's sure it's a very science. It's a, I don't want to say it's very sciencey, It's definitely sciency, but it's much more about like the interpersonal relationships of the researchers and 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 what, especially what the main character was going through. But I just thought it was a fascinating book. It made me want to climb trees myself. <laughs> In fact, I think I do have a friend that that did end up going out west, and then she started doing a lot of like tree climbing and, and stuff yeah, like that. So I think professionally, like she had all the gear and everything else. So, yeah, um, but so it, cool. it's such an amazing. Uh, I, I don't know. At least reading about it, I. I spent a lot of my childhood climbing trees, like I, like I said um, earlier. We, my family owns a lot of land. Uh, we built tree forts, but we, most of the time we'd just be climbing up in trees. And if a tree came down in the forest, mm-hmm. that was even more exciting because <laughs> you, you could still get like 20, 30 feet in the air, you but it would just be on a tree it. that's yes. kind of tipped over, you know, and, and that was super exciting too. but. So I kind of lived my childhood up in trees and stuff, but nothing as intense as having the gear going up,
1: you know, 100 plus 100 feet. Plus yeah, feet. Yeah, that, yeah, that sounds amazing to me. It, it cool. is absolutely amazing. And it's like, I've never been, but I may, imagine it being like the Galapagos where, you know, animals are not used to seeing people, and you can walk right up to a hawk sitting on a pole somewhere. Wow. You know, it's, it's been like, I've had so many experiences where Animals would just come check me out as I was up there and they'd be just as close as we are right now. You know, troops of monkeys and parrots would just sit right there, not even uh, <laughs> wondering what this weird creature is up here and what oh. it's doing. And
0: Now, yeah. I, I have to ask, have you ever seen the movie Arachnophobia?
1: Oh, of course.
0: All right, so yeah, have you ever seen it? No. So this is from, like, Tiggering? 90s, 80s, yes. maybe? So in that movie, they're researching in the rainforest, and they set up all these traps on the yep. forest floor, and then they, like send some kind of chemical up. Yep. Does that actually happen?
1: Yeah, so that's actually based on one of the most famous tropical entomologists, Terry Irwin is his name. He's okay. a famous, I think he passed away fairly recently. And that's what he used to do. He's the guy who, um, he would fog these trees, individual trees, and would look at the diversity of mostly Coleoptera beetles yeah. out there. Mm-hmm. And then he would do it with different trees and he would realize that every single species of tree had its own unique fauna. Wow. wow. And he's the guy who sort of extrapolated like how many different insect species there might actually still be out there based on the number of that trees. That we have no idea. This is like order of magnitude, like he literally extended our awareness by like an order of magnitude. Aren't, aren't, aren't you know.
2: Coleoptera one of the biggest or most diverse groups? They are. Yeah. They they are, yeah. They are, yeah. yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's so many just. Rest- and we see the same thing here, of course. There's so many species tied to specific trees, but right. wow. tree diversity in the tropics is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, yeah. Yeah. Right. So for tree climbing, too, like y- you start to realize which trees are climbable and which ones aren't. So once you figure out what kind of trees are safer to climb, trying to find another one of the same species is absolutely madness. It just doesn't right. work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not like here. And a lot of trees have, as a total aside here, have all these different defenses because. I do like, want to get too sidetracked here, but. <laughs> it's okay. No, no, we love the <laughs> sidetracks. That's,
2: I feel like this is going to be mm, like. We might split this into two episodes. I, I, I was actually thinking about bringing that <laughs> yeah. up, yeah.
1: So, in a tropical rainforest, unlike a temperate rainforest, or a temperate rainforest or forests, temperate forest, you know, the, the bulk of the biodiversity is maintained in living organisms. It's all above ground. Now, there's hardly anything in the ground. So, tropical soils are just like tennis court red clay, right? The lateritic mm-hmm. soil has nothing in it, nothing grows in it there's not a layer of soil on top of it like we see here, there's a layer of soil on top of it like we see here, but there it's two inches thick. And these like 200 foot trees grow in sometimes less than a foot of soil. All of the biomass is contained above ground pretty much, Mm -hmm. so the little bit that's on the soil is completely contained in these mycelia, these hyphens from all these fungi to take it all together, right? And that's what the trees tap into again but most of the biomass is above ground and mostly in the canopy so Mm -hmm. it's this huge competition for light to get to 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 grow right so that's why you have epiphytes and hemi-epiphytes you have plants that grow on plants you have plants that are true epiphytes that don't have roots in the soil that grow anywhere as long as they have access to water and sunlight so mostly they're in the treetops and hemi-epiphytes do that but then also send down roots into the soil and can sort of have a giant straw to suck some additional resources out So, long story short, trees are all like top-heavy because they're completely covered in other plants that that don't have the big infrastructure to grow towards the light, they just sit on top of somebody else. And that's not a good thing because trees become top-heavy, they have hardly any root system because Mm -hmm. there's no soil there, so they flip over really easily, they fall over really easily. Um, So trees have all these different mechanisms to avoid having too much weight and too much biomass growing on them. So some have chemical defenses. Some amazing stuff. There's there's a whole family of trees that uh, exudes essential amino acids through its bark. So essential amino acids are the kind of amino acids that you have to get from your food. Your body can't produce it itself. Mm-hmm. So all these animals are desperate for sources of these essential amino acids. So they they munch on the bark and in the process, like knock off aphids wow. and stuff <laughs> like that. Wow. And some trees. So this is where I was kind of getting to. Some trees have fracture planes in their branches. So when the tops get too heavy, they can very easily, relatively painlessly shed a, an entire branch which would be the size of one of our trees here, <laughs> without, <laughs> rather than like losing the entire crown or falling over. So those are the trees that you need to figure out. So unfortunately, no one had written the field guide to like the trees of Costa Rica yet. So you're right. you're always testing these kind of things where there, there were literally trees. I had a friend who was studying um, the pollinators of these these potrisia trees and the local name is botarama spanish for d- branch droppers and that's exactly what they do. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> so now yeah. that's a good
2: common name i, I have some <laughs> hey, issues is with same, common right? names <laughs> from time to time <laughs> yeah but uh that that's a good one yeah
1: yeah so we would actually at first we start to climb these trees and we like climb up and we bring these like aluminum extendable ladders and we like lash those to the trunk as high as we can climb and then we'd like extend them over how the high ground, up were you 140 150 oh my, feet oh my yeah, cow, yeah. Wow. and he was like he was nuts he actually uh you try to get above the crown, so you have to go higher than the highest branches. So that's where the ladders came in. So we're like balancing on these like ladders on top of these giant trees. But then the pollinators, of course, are like all go away from you. So you're they're like a few feet away from you. So we're trying to catch them. He was actually photographing me. He was carrying one of these like giant rocket launchers, 600 millimeter, like twenty thousand dollar lenses on his back as he was wow. doing this kind of stuff. But. Ha. But then we realized that the trees these botaramas drop their branches really easily so rather than actually climbing up there when we needed to collect flowers we'd actually just shoot a little line up into the branch but farther away from the trunk and, and pull uh, yeah just <laughs> pull and run for a lot li- wow. <laughs> <tier laughs> that's and amazing these huge branches would just come crashing down and then we would just go back and you know, collect the flowers but yeah it's just fascinating wow. stuff but there's just so much out there we don't know see
0: this is what i'm talking about you're teaching kids in high school and these are the stories you have yeah right yeah the teacher next door is not going to have a story like that (laughs) I was in school (laughs) right all right so you're in Connecticut telling these awesome stories
1: (laughs) yeah so I did that for a year and then I of course was having some serious withdrawal from herpetology (laughs) so I found the local herpetologists and um, hooked up with the folks at, uh, at Yale University's Peabody Museum of Natural History at the herpetology division there and, um, and I started working there as a researcher, so I started continuing the work I'd been doing for quite some time already, but based out of Yale University, out of the Peabody Museum. Wow. Um, <laughs> doing a lot of museum he work. He says there, it's too. so <laughs> natural. Know, what, what, but what a CV, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Peabody Museum, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. man. <they> dinosaurs <laughs> and everything. It's awesome. awesome. Yeah, but that's, I, I did that for a while, you know, but then you're living off grand money. You know, I was a foreigner. I didn't, I wasn't, I'm still not a citizen. I'm a permanent resident here. So there's all kinds of other constraints to what I could and could not do. And I, I struggled with kind of what I alluded to earlier, like suddenly being stuck in this research box again and not really reaching the kind of audience that I wanted to reach that I thought I could really do more with too. But So all my life I've been sort of struggling between, I hate to call it research, it's more like satisfying my personal curiosity I think more than mm-hmm. anything. But having at least the training to follow through and really being able to like, you know, identify problems and trying to find answers for those. But then sharing that knowledge with as many people as possible, right? So it's this whole kind of research and education kind of thing.
0: I think the the best naturalists, <laughs> they're always in conflict about what they want to do more, teach or learn. Right. right? Exactly. <laughs>
1: yeah. So then you do one. So I did one, I was doing research and I was like, oh, I really wanna teach and then I took a teaching job at uh, the a university in Connecticut thinking I would have these nice long summer breaks so I can just go travel to the tropics and keep doing my research <laughs> and before I knew it I had a 200% teaching load and not a single minute to even do anything but grade lab papers <laughs> and so that was I went from one extreme to the other and then I and the position opened up at the uh, Connecticut Audubon Society where they were looking t- for someone to restart their um, their conservation division and I thought you know that's with the connections that made, with the academic connections I had, with the sort of educational connections I had, I thought, you know, let's try that. Of course, it was an Audubon Society, so I had to learn birds really quickly. <laughs> but I'd somehow, I knew my European birds and my tropical birds, but I somehow ended up on another part of the country, or the world actually, where I wasn't really terribly familiar. So What's a chickadee? I know, <laughs> I had this like, horrible long commutes, so I would listen to the Peterson, Field guides on CDs, go. right, Unless they to all nice. a bird call. So I, I memorized all those. So I, I got pretty good with that. Mm-hmm. But um, a little less diversity
0: in Connecticut than in Costa Rica. Yeah, yeah. but you know, a <laughs> lot of the birds
1: move back and forth, so it's nice true. to oh. see familiar faces. Right. So right. so I, I band birds. I'm a bird bander too, and I do that here as well as in the tropics. And it's just amazing to see yeah. birds that you know. I love going into spring and banding migrants. Yeah. You know, You check their like their fat scores. You know, you look at like how much they're actually like bulking up to get ready for the trip and. Sometimes you catch these like chest inside of warbos and they look like flying meatballs, you know, they're like ready to go. <laughs> and then they hop on the plane and I get back all exhausted and like two weeks later, you see the first chest inside of Warbo show up in your backyard and you're like, these guys just did it on their own accord, right? You know, they right, didn't hop right. on a plane and they're like, I was tired, but yeah. I can't even imagine what it's like for those creatures. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's just those connections, which is so fascinating, so fascinating. And I think the educational value of connecting parts of the world too because of that. You can work in totally different parts of the world and we're all dealing with the same problems, we're all dealing with the same challenges and we're all dealing with the same constraints that people just don't see what needs to be seen so that we can start raising the awareness that we all need to get so that people are better stewards of our planet, their own backyards even and to let people realize that their own backyards are connected to somebody else's backyard and it's not just your neighbor's backyard but it could be a backyard in Costa Rica or Panama or somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. And I think those kind of connections are so critically important, and are so missing from the public's awareness right now. I don't think people really realize that we don't live in a bubble, that we don't live in a vacuum, that like <coughs> people, a lot of people feel that they do. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not sure if it's even conscious. You know, I think I right. think society kind of created that situation. Yes. I always joke about this, and I, I don't want to like offend anybody, but it, you know, it's. I have kids in school. One is just about to start high school. One's in middle school they love this stuff they love being outside they love just creepy crawlies my son was like he wants to be an entomologist mostly because it's great to bring spiders into the house and my wife and <laughs> his sister love it and <laughs> he's at that age too but he just genuinely loves this stuff he's genuinely interested in this stuff and it's just because i made him early on and i didn't even really try to like kids i think innately just enjoy this kind of stuff and they, they lose it but i see them go to school on the first week of school not this year but in a normal year normal year you know the first week of school they learn about all the exciting stuff that's going to happen in the year and there's always that you know the elusive field trips at the end of the year when all the learning is done and there maybe there's some time left and there's some money left in the school budget and we'll load everybody up into a giant yellow can and we'll drive for (laughs) however long and we'll open Uh the doors and there's going to be nature you know and you get to run around in it and eat lunch in it and then you go back in your can and you go back home and it's (laughs) That disconnect that we start so early on, not realizing that you walk through nature to get to the yellow can or just to go to school every day, it's just really devastating. Yeah. And people who, you know, work and work and work their entire career so they can retire early so they can go travel and see the world. Stupid. <laughs> the world's there the whole time. <laughs> and it's these backyards are all connected. So we're just walking by this stuff all the time. Like right. some of us aiming to someday enjoy it, but we're missing out. We're really missing out.
0: All right, we sidetracked you from talking about applying for the job
1: for Audubon. All right, so I applied and I got the job. And <laughs> <laughs> so, Long story w- <laughs> short. <laughs> <laughs> so I worked in Connecticut for seven years doing that and really rebuilding conservation efforts. And it was one of these cyclical things where these organizations do the same kind of thing we were just describing to kind of you know, shift their focuses from what's really needed, what society wants, what's possible, what's feasible. And in the course of things, the, the real focus on boots on the ground conservation had kind of gone missing. They had a whole network of nature centers and educators, but had lost all their conservation stuff. You I mean, know, the same kind of thing happened when I was, and just before I was at Yale, too. Like, there's, there are these sort of cyclical societal things where all the organismal folks at Yale had been laid off or disappeared. There was, like, nobody there teaching courses about plants and animals. Right. You know? They were the, most, the smartest people on the planet, shaking test tubes and doing all this like amazing genetic work and molecular work and all kinds of other work. But most of them, I would I would hook up with researchers who were studying some sort of organism that I was familiar with, and I would go talk to them. And more often than not, they wouldn't even be able to recognize one of these things if they stumbled over it in the woods, right? Because it's they the just dealt between with a bunch micro of, and macro. Yeah, right? exactly. Well,
2: even at the college that I went to before the one I'm at now. Um, I was talking with the head of the biology department and Mm -hmm. I was like how come there's not like any plant stuff here you know why is there one class why is there just a 400 level class called plant physiology and then there's like nothing else and he's like well actually there used to be a ton of us like there was a ton of uh, botanists in the department it's like in fact my previous work was all plant-based and now he works with worms he he does genetic stuff Um, but he was like yeah just over time just slowly one by one all the botanists in the department dropped off and we replaced them with microbiology yeah, people or or, a, or, a, or ecology but but not nothing like you know ornithology mammalogy, nice. botany stuff yeah. like that it just it's not uh, is it not like a selling point or something like what what is the, the i don't know why I, it, it college, it drops like,
1: up. I remember like you you started really really broadly the whole education system is different there anyway but i remember my first year studying biology and you in europe like if you go and study biology that's all you take no pottery classes or like you know, <laughs> nothing like that like mm-hmm. it, nothing but biology And at the very end of the first year, all of us were told, well, we knew we had to do it early on, but there were two week courses, two one week courses. One was on animal diversity, one was plant diversity. Two weeks. Yeah, (laughs) two weeks. And it was really intense, but we were already told at the time, you know, most of you will go into some other field that you'll never need this kind of knowledge. But you know, when you Hmm. come out of this thing and you have a biology degree, people are going to come to you and say, hey, what's this plant? And you're probably like... A vet or <laughs> whatever right? <laughs> right i have right. no clue so that so already we were told like as if this was kind of an afterthought you know you're going to be called a biologist at some point so you need to know a little bit about plants and animals so that you can answer the general public's questions <laughs> kind of thing yeah so and i thought that was just so weird because those were like the coolest two weeks of the entire education pretty much right, right? you know you're just out there nerding out with people and just the last yeah. surviving experts that were still on the <laughs> faculty that were just They're just giving it their all for that one week because that was their chance to maybe convert a few of us to, like, stay in this kind of field. And most of us didn't, but it's
2: it's funny, even at even at the University of Buffalo, where I'm going now, um, one of our friends graduated from there with an ecology degree. But in the ecology program, there is not a field ecology class. If you want to take field ecology, you have to go into the environmental studies department. <laughs> um, and he never ended up taking it. But a lot of his friends, like myself and, and a bunch of other people we know, did end up taking that class. And it was one of the most eye-opening classes that I've ever had. Like I think the very first day, he took us right outside the building mm-hmm. and we walked 20 feet from the building. And that's where we did our, all, Id- all of our identification. We weren't really allowed to use the word lawn, <laughs> because uh, <laughs> okay. the, the lawn is made up of so many species that yeah. you know we were identifying all these non-natives that you know that were just covering the place that normally you just walk past and you wouldn't even think twice about. But that was like a lot of our first exposure mm-hmm. to things like that. And then eventually we did kind of get to the, the edge, you know, some edge habitat uh, for for a little forest we have over there, and we started identifying other things like bone set and, and stuff like that. Yeah. But um, so cool. but it was That's just amazing. He, he forced us to start on a lawn yeah. <laughs> you know and just a, just something that everyone sees all the time all of these things are in our backyards you and on the side granted. of our yep. sidewalks
1: i know it's like here too like often i ask random people in the city when they're going for a walk like how many birds do you think are in the city here like how many different birds do you yeah. think are here right because you know i'm just nerdy like that i keep track of fly like, i live in the <laughs> city i just keep track of the birds that i've, that I've seen in my backyard mm-hmm. and you know if if they all sort of like huddle together they can probably come up with maybe 20 or so right. you know right and i'm like i, I know i've got over 140 birds on my art <laughs> list so i'm like you know like uh, I'm 140 yeah so but just to show people like if you know what to look, it's like i always call it my superpower it's like, it's like these things <laughs> where you're like you know you go to like a barbecue and people realize you're like into biology and people are like you know what when i was younger i used to see these like tanagers They're like, just, I haven't seen one in probably like 50 years. And I'm sitting there going, like, I can hear one right now, right <laughs> over <now, right>? there, <laughs> right? Right, so, right. And and now looking. you whip out your superpower, and you're like, guess what? It's but funny, it's, when we do
2: the birdathon yeah. every year, yeah. um, I, I ask people, I'm like, oh, how many birds do you think we got? Mm-hmm. And, and and at first, they're like, oh, 200. And I was like, oh, I mean, like, bird species, which 200 <laughs> is even pretty low anyway. But they're like, oh, species, I, I don't know, like 20 or right, you know, very, whatever. Right, right. And we're like, oh, no, we got, what was this year, 100 and... <laughs>
0: 40 something, hundred and forty yeah. something, yeah. and that
2: was in twenty four hours, <laughs> Wait, and, and, exactly, and a right? big chunk of that we were sleeping. So, <laughs> yes. you know.
0: well, we should say Tom Kerr did most of it. Well, yeah, we, uh, we, yeah, we, we go, <laughs> we
2: we go with someone that's like a you know like a level <laughs> twenty birder, and we ringer. Whereas I should say it's not like it's not like we're dopes when it comes to birds no, or yeah, anything. No. Um, it's it just that Tom you know. is so dope there's
1: there's an interesting, cool like I think Roger torrey Peterson anecdote. So Roger was born and raised here in Jamestown, right? So and I think that's sort of like one of the reasons why I wanted to come here, because I just thought this is so cool that this all, like for me personally, his work, before even knowing about Roger Tory Peterson, like his work really sparked my interest in nature. And it's there have been all these different touch points. There's a variety of reasons why I ended up here. But I think the concept that this is sort of in any kind of town, anywhere, you know, there's nothing really special about Jamestown, New York. You mm-hmm. know, There's so many towns like this. You know, everybody laments the fact that this used to be such a great place with all these factories booming and all this <laughs> stuff is being produced here and all the jobs are gone and the young people don't want to stay here and they go somewhere else and they all go to bigger cities and right. I, I get that and these are all real observations and real concerns but i'm coming out here and I, I used to come out here my my wife's family lives close by so that was sort of my introduction to this area that kind of got me to this area on the radar and i befriended the previous president of um the Roger Troy peterson Institute, when I'd come out on a family visits, I would, like, you know, come out for Christmas and sneak off and go birding with him and we'd just nerd nice. out together. So I knew about the place long before I started working here, and I was just blown away by everything out here, just, you know, like, having one county the size of Rhode Island with, like, <sighs> nobody in it, and every time I showed up, I'm finding stuff that nobody had even seen. I'm, like, hanging out with, like, one of the best naturalists in the area, and I'm, like, how about... Pine warblers. Like, if I was in this exact same place and it was in Connecticut, there'd be pine warblers in a tree, and he would say, Oh no, we don't really get pine warblers. I'm like, Can I just play a call? And he's like, Sure. And then I play a call, and like, <laughs> pine warbler sinks back. And it's like, it's like, kid in the candy store kind of stuff. You right. know? I'm like, This is amazing, you know? Yeah. And then just that amazing recent geological history and just the watersheds, and like, we're on the top of two of the biggest watersheds in the country. So we have these like Class A, really high quality feeder streams, and I still, like, I don't get to play outside nearly as much as I want to, but every time I do, I find stuff that's not supposed to be here, it's awesome, it's just.
0: So is that how you ended up getting the job here? Is because you had contacts?
1: Yeah, so so Jim Barry, our previous president before me, he, he retired and put my name in a hat. I was intrigued by the possibilities here, and the, the kind of projects that I was doing in Connecticut where I was connecting real-life researchers with students who might have an interest in those fields and putting them together on projects, which realistically made it more affordable to do these projects because you have interns and students that work for credit instead of environmental consultants that are unaffordable. So you can actually do the work that needed to be done, nobody could afford to do it. But you also got these young people excited and really just entrenched in like real research at a point in their career where they would never be able to do these kind of things or like we are talking about earlier where they wouldn't be exposed to the kind of classes or professors or experiences that they may have wanted going into these kind of careers, but they're not even offered anymore. You don't even have the people teaching you biology, old school, you know, flora and fauna, plants and animals. So there's so many different career options out there and there's so many ways students can prepare for so many different fields, but biology, biology is just so broad and there's like, if you're Mm -hmm. into really natural history type research, ecological research, it's so difficult before you get to college to really get exposure. You know, there really aren't any sort of after-school clubs or entities that offer these kind of experiences. You know, if you're into sports, you can... If school doesn't give you enough, you (laughs) join a club, right? If you're into music, same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But if you're really into nature, where do you go? Where do you go before you get a chance? I I did the same thing. Like I said, I wasn't very good in school and I was going through high school thinking like, oh, this sucks. I need to get out of here. And that was the first kid in my family to ever go to college so i couldn't waste that opportunity because it would have devastated my parents but at the same time i was thinking like i'm not sure what i'm doing with my life biology seemed like the closest fit to something that i would really enjoy but i didn't really know what i'd sign on for yeah um but i i run into kids all the time in the community like that they're just you know you get them out on a field trip or an experience or an internship or like our summer programs that we do and you can just see these kids are so into this and this is the first time somebody like grabs them and throws them out of the comfort zone and like puts them in waders and throws them in the river and has them catch (laughs) turtles and like hold birds and you know pull invasives and you can just see that this is something that they would like to do more with but there's no opportunity unless you create it so so i really saw this as an opportunity to kind of beat a conduit for that you know roger was really in my mind about using his own personal talents to go back to jamestown you know it's any town and roger really was just any kid you know he didn't have superpowers. You know, <laughs> he was an incredible artist. He had an incredible eye. It's just like we've been talking about for the last mm-hmm. hour or so. It's <laughs> like I think everybody has it. Everybody can develop it. Most people don't. And the only way you can develop it is if you have somebody who kind of helps you nudge that along. And he had that in like an elementary school teacher who had sort of a nature club on the site. And he credits Miss hornback with that a lot <laughs> during his career to joining his Audubon club and getting into it But ultimately it was his own doing and his own interest and his own drive to just learn and learn and learn, just be a sponge and just soak up this information and then use whatever talent he had, he had an awful lot of them of course, to like take that information that he had in his head and convey it in a way that it would spark the same kind of sentiment in other people, to convey that to other people. And he didn't do it in sort of a traditional fashion, he wasn't a researcher, he had no research background at all, um, but he was incredibly talented at condensing so much information into a little visual yeah right you know a little cartoon bird but an arrow there you have it we talk about science communication he was oh a good God, visual so science communicator
0: yeah, right? yeah yeah now can i'm looking at our time uh can you give the listeners an idea of at least like one of the projects you're working on now because i know when we had met you had talked a little bit about terrapins i don't know if that was part of the institute or yeah
1: not. yeah so i still have a lot of projects ongoing that are sort of separate from the peterson institute i can't let them go anymore mm-hmm. i I, I've done a lot of work with uh, critically endangered amphibian populations, and I'm now fortunate enough to like be able to work with frogs that were gone and they're coming back. So we are still doing some real That's research. That's down in some Central students. America. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But here, you know, that the sort of, you know, for logistical reasons, you know, I'm most of the year I'm here in Jamestown. So knowing that we're walking on the same grounds that inspired Roger Tory Peterson when he was a kid, you know, blank slate, no real background and kind of the same stuff we talked about earlier when I first went to Costa Rica you know you just wow by all this stuff but you don't really know what it is and you just kind of educate yourself he did exactly the same thing in the streets of Jamestown and I just I want other people to have that experience kids but anybody really at this point Mm -hmm. so like I said before like more every time I go out here I find stuff that's not supposed to be here or something that (laughs) people kind of knew was here but didn't realize that it was something important so one of the first things I saw here when I came I was with some folks, actually colleagues from the Peterson Institute, and they're like, oh, you like turtles and reptiles, right? So we got to show you a spot where there's lots of turtles. I'm like, oh, I'm game. So we went over there, and uh, they took me to this industrial parking lot, and there were a bunch of turtles there, but they were, all, they were all spiny softshell turtles, which is a special concern species in New York State. We're right on the edge of there. Geographic distribution range right here. They go a little bit farther north. You have a few spots actually going up into Buffalo as really? well. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, I didn't even know that. Yeah, they're amazing. So they're these evil <laughs> Muppets. <laughs> right, so they're like a foot and a half across the large females. They, they make snapping turtles look like teddy bears in terms of disposition. Oh. They have these floppy shells and they're built for speed. They're super fast swimmers and they're really a southern species and they're really common in places where you find them but they're not common in places where they're not supposed to be like here here, except Mm. for this one industrial parking lot in the middle of Jamestown which after I started really looking around more and really starting to study them turned out to be this hotbed for soft-shell turtles it's like the biggest breeding site for soft turtles in New York State. And no one knew about it? Nobody knew about it. So when, when, did, when did you come upon this? Uh, my first year in 2012 here. Wow, so just eight years ago. Yeah, to the point that every year I have to apply for permits from the Department of Environmental Conservation to be allowed to be near these turtles because they're in danger. Right. But I'm always hesitant to report how many I see because (laughs) it's a numbers game and then we actually be removed from the nature species list if people actually knew how many we had here. But it's really localized. So it's it's what I'm getting to really is that like even though I'm still working in these really remote parts of the planet, I've worked all over and dealing with really pristine places, as pristine as possible, I am absolutely fascinated with urban nature because this parking lot is literally the worst scenario you could have imagined for a species like this. And it works. So <laughs> they're doing okay. They're doing great. The population's not well declining. We had 120 some nests the first season. Whoa. Holy cow. And most okay. of them failed because it's a horrible oh, site. Right. But at the same time, the habitat doesn't sustain more than what's there already, probably. But
0: Generally, don't most turtle species have a pretty low success rate? It's a pretty
1: low success rate, so that's okay. But so the they fact live for that so long. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. well, that's that's the other cool thing. So, you know, when I first started talking about these discoveries and what I'm seeing here to people in the community and the people at city councils and stuff, I would start talking about you know having students out there and we're counting nests and we're like doing these giant seine nets to the river so we can try to catch and tag these turtles, and people would stop me in mid conversation and go, "You put." our kids in the river because they thought it was an industrial wasteland and they would either dissolve or catch on fire by touching the water (laughs) and and that's i love that part because when you look at the river it looks like it can catch on fire anytime it looks like you know it's these industrial remnants of this historical jamestown right where 80 70 80 years ago you couldn't even see that river because it was underneath factories wow and it was the river was trapdoors in the floor of the workspace, right? And at the end of the day, wow. the trapdoor opened up and everything that needed to go, just got swept into the hole and the river would carry it away. You know, you like sweep it down a hole, you do like a pokey pokey and you look down and it's gone, right? It's this like self-cleaning mess. It's fantastic. So for the longest time, <laughs> people have been using this river and any river in any town like this for the same way. Like the, the whole mindset, that, yeah, the mindset has shifted now. So factories are gone. Everybody's like, oh, I wish we could. Have those days back, and I'm thinking like, no I'm okay with this. You <laughs> know, it's yeah. like right, I'd right. like to have more jobs, but you know, the way we treated our environment historically, we know more now, we can do better than that. Right. So, to see sensitive species like that, you know, softshell turtles use their soft shell. To, they're kind of like half amphibians. You know, they can actually absorb oxygen and like they can exchange gases and fluids through their skin. Wow. wow. Okay. Yeah. So for a large turtle. They, they shouldn't be
2: in polluted waters, I would imagine. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> not polluted waters and highly oxygenated, so it needs yeah. to be cold
1: and it needs to be oxygenated. So, whether you like these turtles or not, the fact that we have them without ever taking out a water test kit, I can tell you that that's good water right there. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm finding other stuff in the river that indicates that too. You look at the infrastructure right. and you go, I, "I don't touch. I won't touch that stuff." Great, but yeah, it's just these biological indicators are just fantastic tools for to communicate what's yeah. actually going on. So yeah. I'm starting to see people starting like. People are starting to adopt these turtles as like the community mascots. Like the river is like equated with the turtles. Yeah. And, you know, they're so weird that they're kind of likeable. They're like creepy and weird or kind of <laughs> cool and weird, but they're yeah. interesting enough that people catch on to this stuff. Yeah. So, but the cool thing is I'm finding all these species that live in these urban environments in completely man-made habitats. And so you know others, like, you know, purple martins. It's like there's not a single purple martin on the East Coast that lives in a natural habitat. Right. They all live <laughs> in plastic or gourd, right? So right. it's, and they're endangered. You know, their numbers are plummeting. So this is the best kind of conservation. Like I remember like trucking through Nicaragua And working in El Salvador trying to find freaking national parks that were supposed to be there and you can't fix that you cannot fix these problems as much as you want to help polar bears there's not any amount of money you can send to any organization that is going to help polar bears in the short term you know hopefully we have enough time and something will happen and it turns itself around but it is beyond a repair but these kind of things like species that live in these man-made habitats if we can figure out how to build it we can make this stuff like the more mm-hmm. purple martingores you put up in the right places the more purple martens we're going to have that's right. the bottleneck right now you just need to know enough about where to put them and we can turn the tide on the aerial insectivores declining because they live in these kind of habitats House sparrows in Holland are in the endangered species list or on the watch list because <laughs> they used to live on the roof tiles and nobody liked that so they started making these new roof tiles and all these different barriers and now they blanket in a decade removed wholesale all of their breeding habitat Wow. It's more so funny to think of house sparrows as I know, a Right. species. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it it shows you the impact we've had on the environment. But it, I think that our, our ingenuity could be flipped around. Oh yeah! If we had the right focus. Yeah. You know, I, how I, cool would it be to build urban wildlife habitat and really yeah. make like cooler, more sustainable urban environments? And that I way. think you were
0: maybe touching on this point, purposefully or not, but the fact that you don't have to go to one of the most re- remote places right. in the world. To encounter right. wildlife yeah. that's
1: exceptional. Yeah, and I just on the surface, Jameson doesn't look any different from so many other places I've been. There might like be Western other It's yeah. the same everywhere. You know, there's mm-hmm. thousands of cities like that, and you see, you see large metropolitan areas developing these amazing green spaces and green corridors, right? But nobody's figured out how to like scale something like that down so you can create something attractive that still allows for wildlife to function so people can actually see it where ecology and is come part out of there, that. right and it's sure. not so engineered that it's just lawn and block tops so you have a place <laughs> to ride your bike and run right right but something that's real that's that's just part of what was already here before somebody plunked a city on top of it you know we still have this stuff here and it's maybe that's unique i don't think anybody maybe not everybody's that fortunate but we have it and i cannot stand by and watch it disappear and knowing that that kind of stuff, maybe not so much to river Muppet turtles, but, <laughs> but, you know, like the same kind of birds that were out here that we're still seeing sparked Roger Torrey Peterson, who then used his skills to educate tens of millions of people and got them outside with their field guides and do the same thing in their own backyard. It's huge.
0: And I think that is a perfect place to stop because <laughs> honestly, Twan, I think we could talk to you all day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, But I wanted to end with just a, a couple sentences that I, I found from one paper it really wasn't a, a study about field guides, but it was from this great journal called The Ecological Citizen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard about that. So yeah. if you're, you're not real familiar with it, I suggest you checking it out because a lot of the ideas you're talking about right up your alley is talking about looking at society, how they approach nature, trying to envision solutions. But they published an article, two of their um, editors called Field Guides as a Gateway to Appreciating More Than Human Concerns. And this is a, a short passage that I thought would be a perfect place to end. Out of objects, a field guide has forged subjects. Subjects that are imbued with meaning and value and that have independent concerns. Through this shift, our own worlds have changed. New relationships and value centers have become evident everywhere. And the realization has followed that we too are part of the immense and integrated new whole.
1: Love it. Yeah. Spot on. Yeah. yeah.
0: All right, so Tuan, I think uh, we're gonna have to have you on again sometime in the future. <laughs> <to do> it. <laughs> yeah. All right, but thank you so much for spending so much time with us and sharing so much of your knowledge and your incredible stories. And you have made the decision for us. This is gonna have to be a two-part episode. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It'll be no, great. No, I think uh,
2: story time on the podcast is. I think it's a necessity yeah. because uh, it yeah. gets people more invested. I think, yeah. So
1: so thank you oh thank you for getting me out of my office i'm glad we can do it outside it's much better really appreciate the time and happy to come back anytime awesome
0: okay folks thanks for listening first and foremost we want to thank our growing list of patreon supporters our new patrons over the past month included lauren smith jane harrison judy fenerty and kay
2: thank you for becoming new patrons and while we do appreciate every patron we do like to give a special shout out to our top patrons so thank you very much, the Hebranks, Alyssa, Sean, Rich, Jessica, Rachel, Orange Julian, Daniel, Diane, Ken, Lauren, Jane, Rachel and Leah, Indigo, Doodle Dude, <laughs> Elizabeth, Renz, Jay Jean, Callie, Bob, Kazie's, Jeff, Goose, Bruce, Esther, John, Pollywog, we named the dog Indy, and Rob. Thank you guys so much. We also wanna give a very
0: special shout out to listener James Tabalski who made a $50 donation through PayPal. Yes, thank you so much. So if you'd like to become a monthly supporter of the podcast, head on over to Patreon. You can also make a one-time donation through the PayPal button on our website.
2: But if you can't afford to financially support the podcast, we greatly appreciate when you guys leave reviews for us on iTunes or any other podcatcher. Um, so we do want to thank our new reviewers. So thank you, Betsy2727, Twiggy Titan, and, Yit for (laughs) shima, shimfa. Yeah,
0: Yeah. something like that. (laughs) We also promised that we would look at our iTunes from other countries. So I did take a quick minute and check out our iTunes Australia reviews. So I want to thank Little Liss Hobo, Joe Johns, Marion987, and DWH22. And it was actually cool to read that Little Liss Hobo. She said that on our episode she listened to, we mentioned the Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage. Yeah and that they were going virtual this year. Mm-hmm. So she actually attended some of the virtual programs. So wow! someone in Australia was attending the Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage because of us. Wow,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I didn't this year. I I, I didn't I did have the either. time for it, I was so busy, <laughs> but yeah. Me either. So folks, thank you for all that support. We really do
0: appreciate it. And we've been doing our best to be releasing episodes on a monthly basis. We will continue to do that. Mm-hmm. So thanks for listening, folks. We will see you next month, but stick around for a message from our sponsor.
2: All right, guys. So before we end the episode, uh, we want to tell you about our sponsor, Gumleaf USA. So Gumleaf makes tall rubber boots. Uh, Bill and I both have our own pair.
0: And that makes me think of a question, Steve.
2: Yeah. Are you a farmer? I am growing tomatoes on my balcony. <laughs> that doesn't count. What? <laughs> I guess I'm not a farmer. If you were. Sorry, you're the gatekeeper for farming. <laughs> I am. Okay.
0: <laughs> and if you were a farmer, I would recommend gum leaf boots as a perfect piece of footwear for farming duties. Oh, not absolutely. To, not to mention if you were a hunter or a forester, if you were a horse person landscaper,
2: surveyor. (laughs) Is that that what they call themselves, horse people? (laughs) (laughs) That's what I call them. Nice to meet you, I'm a horse person.
0: (laughs) You know the people I'm talking about. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And anglers as well. Ooh, yeah. I know we often mention what we use our gum leaf boots for Mm -hmm. on air, things like herping and birding and botanizing, but they're perfect foot gear for any of those careers that I mentioned as well. Mm -hmm. They come in handy. They're made of 80% natural rubber, so they can bend, many many more times without cracking than those boots that may look the same and cost less but are not as high quality yeah let's throw a
2: number out there what like a million 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 times
0: or <laughs> they more? could bend maybe a million times or more without <laughs> cracking at least that's our anecdotal <laughs> yeah, right so where do people go to check out gum Leaf boots
2: so all you have to do is you visit gumleafusa.com and there is a special a free shipping for our patrons. So um, check that out in the episode notes.
0: Yeah. All right, folks. Thank you, Gumleaf. And we will see you all next month. See you guys.